0: Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast, everyone. In appreciation of Black History Month, we're speaking with two leaders in Arizona who are working to advance the health and well-being of Black Arizonans. Taniqua Broughton is the executive director of the State of Black Arizona, an organization best known for its thorough publications that highlight, well, the State of Black Arizona. These volumes, as they're titled, provide an evidence-based foundation from which one can better understand the experience of African-Americans in our state. We're also thrilled to welcome Dr. Charlene Tarver, CEO of the Women's Economic Institute, an organization working in Arizona and New York to advance economic security for all women and girls with a specific focus on black women. During the pandemic, Dr. Tarver also founded the Black Arizona COVID-19 Task Force, which, as you'll hear, gains national attention for its work. Let's dive in. Without further ado, we are extremely excited to celebrate Black History Month today with two incredible women in the state of Arizona. First is Dr. Charlene Tarver, President and CEO of the Women's Economic Institute, and also the founder of the Black Arizona COVID-19 Task Force. And then also from the State of Black Arizona Executive Director, Tanika Broughton. Taniqua, Charlene, how are both of you doing today? Excellent. Excellent.
1: Excited to be here, Marcus. Thank you so much for the invitation and looking forward to the conversation.
0: For those of our audience members who have never met you as individuals or have never been in partnership with the State of Black Arizona or the Women's Economic Institute, give us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? What's your background? Share with us a little bit about who you are and and what keeps you going. Taniqua, let's kick it off with you.
2: I've been in Arizona for a little over maybe 24, 25 years. I actually transferred here from the University of Kentucky as a student athlete to finish up at Arizona State University. And after finishing sight unseen, so I just signed my paperwork and I came on over, transferred to Arizona State, and I've been here since then. And I think it's been a great ride and opportunity for myself and those that I've been able to interact with. After I graduated with my bachelor's in interdisciplinary studies in educational psychology and an emphasis in theater for youth, I started working at ASU Gamage and doing a lot in arts and arts education, indulging myself in a research and then arts integration. And then just building my career specifically in arts and culture, leaving from there, Free Arts for Abused Children of Arizona, going to Act One, sitting Mm -hmm. on a number of boards, nationally and regionally, and then starting my own consulting practice, which is Verb Simone Consulting that works with a lot of nonprofits. And at that same time, I was asked to finish volume four for the State of Black Arizona, as it was an advisory committee at the time. And that platformed me from actually finishing that volume to now being its founding executive director. So that's my journey.
0: Incredible trajectory. Before we get to Dr. (laughs) Tarver, I've got to ask, what was the sport that you came into ASU with or sports? Okay.
2: So Marcus, what do you
0: think it could be? Oh No, no. That's like a trap question.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, so you've never met me before. So what I will just say to you is it was track. I was a quarter miler. So I do the sprints. I was a sprinter.
0: So. Very neat. Yeah, <laughs> I, uh, I can run far. Fast doesn't work. Most of my friends, it looks <laughs> like I'm running in sand anytime that I run quickly. So you got me on that. <laughs> Dr. Charlene Tarver, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah so first things first, Tanika, I never knew you were a track star. I actually was a, a long distance runner. So but I didn't go to college on on that. I actually went to college on a pre-law track. So I'm a mother of identical twin girls and we actually moved to Arizona in 2003 with Arizona State University as well to do uh, charitable planning. My background is in law, and I turned into a public policy advocate. Uh, actually spent a number of years doing charitable tax planning, served as the president of the Plan Giving Roundtable there in Arizona, I worked with Arizona State University, with Phoenix Children's Hospital, with an international fundraising organization. Then from there, went on to practice law for For a number of years, formed a consulting firm, chartered the National Coalition of 100 Black Women in 2015, and then in 2017 formed the Women's Economic Institute, which I serve as the current CEO today. I have an undergraduate degree from New York University, a law degree from University of Buffalo School of Law, and an advanced legal degree in tax from Georgetown Law which is very relevant to the work that I do today with the Women's Economic Institute. And we actually have also started doing development work. So land development work as well, focused on low income housing tax credits. So I look forward to sharing a little bit more information about that as well. But again, excited to be here today.
0: Both of you have just incredible and, and storied and, and backgrounds with a multitude of different sectors, really, that you've been involved in, With is really impressive. I'm curious... When you started in your schooling or even before that, was there something that really drove you that you think is still a part of who you are that kind of helped to land you where you are today? What's your why? Why are you currently involved in the work that you're involved in? Both of your organizations have a specific focus on the Black community here in Arizona and even more broadly, but what's your why?
1: I think for me, the why is, you know, I grew up in a city that has historically been racially segregated as of as late as 2010 I was identified and acknowledged as having the highest concentration of black and Latino poverty in the nation. The city has been rated one of the top 10 worst cities in America for African Americans and has the highest segregation rate. Our county has the highest segregation rate in America as well. And so when you look at the data and those stats for the city of Syracuse, it's really hard to believe that Syracuse is located in the state of New York, which is one of the most affluent states in the nation. And So when you look at those disparities, that's kind of the backdrop to my childhood. So I grew up in, in a family where my parents were entrepreneurs. My dad and mom owned a, a fish market and a dry cleaners. So I saw very early on in my childhood kind of the benefits of entrepreneurism and how that really helped to shape an urban community. Although they were business owners, they were very much blue collar. My father had a third grade education. My mom attended the community college, yet we were able to go to Catholic school. We were integrated into the Catholic schools out in the suburbs, and from there went on to pursue some of my own academic interests and career interests. And so, again, I think the backdrop for me was seeing the level of poverty in my community, but that poverty has become even more pervasive over the last 33 years. See, we're actually, as of May, the Women's Economic Institute expanded our reach into Central New York. Our mission is really economic sustainability, and income security for women and girls of color. And our focus is really on economic development, affordable housing, workforce readiness, academic enrichment, and really looking at how we can improve the overall quality of life for women and girls of color and communities of color in urban communities. And so I was very tremendously impacted by my own career, one, my childhood, but then also my own career, some of my own professional challenges that I encountered, not having sufficient mentorship and running a law firm, not having access to adequate capital and resources. And so as we talk about what does economic development and sustainability mean in communities of color and for small businesses, I think it's really important to understand that although Black women are establishing businesses at five to six times the national average, the average earnings are about $28,000 a year, they're severely undercapitalized and do not have the resources, the technology, the access to dollars and, and services that really create sustainable businesses. And so that's really the backdrop of the Women's Economic Institute. It's kind of a meshing of my childhood, my own professional experiences and challenges, and then seeing so many of the businesses that I worked with, both through my law career, as well as through my social activism and advocacy, and looking at ways that we could be more intentional in providing Black women and girls and BIPOC communities, really the resources that they need to be sustainable and successful closing that
0: wealth and gender gap. Yeah, I I really appreciate that background information just because I think that I have a background in public health. And when we talk about health or public health or health care, we often don't talk about the need for what that actually means and the economics that are tied to upward mobility, which have a significant tie to health. And so I just think it's a great example that we at Vitalist Health Foundation, as a health foundation, Are still able to see the benefit and the connection in economic development, particularly for certain populations that have been marginalized for centuries, essentially.
1: Absolutely. And when you look at Marcus, you mentioned kind of the social determinants of health, you know, when you look at zip codes, zip codes are a they are a significant factor in the overall quality of health and quality of life. That individuals have. We see, uh, based upon the data, that two-thirds of Black women live in unhealthy environments. 50% of our homeless population in America is African American, many above the age of 55, and a number of women and children who live below the poverty level in this country. So when we talk about health care and access to health care and healthcare equity, we really can't talk about that without talking about economic development and really you know, the, the fact that this country, the overall poverty index for African Americans has not improved since the 1950s is really a startling reality that we have to look at when we talk about healthcare access and healthcare equity.
0: Nico, how does this resonate with you? Is this part of what keeps you going as well, or what's, what's your why?
2: Yeah, um, a lot of my why is similar to Charlene. I mean, Charlene went way down and I always appreciate her because she takes the time to really understand and then make the connection between the data, the lived experiences and then the actual practice. So my why really is from actually leading by modeling. You know, this is what I actually saw when I grew up. My mother was an entrepreneur. I spent a lot of time with her having an interior design business and going into the homes of people. And so I think I really grew or started to develop a knack for wanting to understand business sort of early on. But then it became service. So for me, it's service as an assignment. So when I think about my why right now, I operate just like Charlene in two different spaces. I'm still in the arts and culture space, still doing my work, advocate dedicated to that. But then also I'm in the education space with the data with the state of Black Arizona. And so my why is that this is my assignment. When I understand who I presently am right now, this is what I am called to do. I wouldn't have necessarily have said almost eight years ago, yeah, you know what, I want to go ahead and, and, and lead the state of Black Arizona. At the time when I talked about earlier that I was asked to actually do this project in particular, volume four, which was on arts and arts education, which was my field of work. I didn't think beyond the 90 days that it would have been more than that. But what ended up happening is in that transition, a number of philanthropic donors and investors who have followed and supported my career wanted to help see through some of the things that the advisory committee wanted. So the state of Black Arizona has been around in name since 2009, but it didn't officially become an organization until 2015 and then receiving shortly after its 501 three status. So for me, it was definitely me understanding that this was the assignment. This is where I'm to stay. So that's why I do what I do presently in this leadership role. And I understand the importance and significance of it. And I'm so glad to have People in the community like Charlene who understand the value of the data part, because that's the part that when I talk about, you know, how we move through our work, we've seen strides now being able to really utilize the reports and publications that we have from last year,
0: especially. I love that concept of doing the work as an assignment. You know, it it gives some weight to it, something that you're called to do. Taniqua, you had mentioned the state of black Arizona volume four. I know that volume five came out just about a year ago now. So give us a little bit of background about what the state of black Arizona actually is. And what is that organization's assignment?
2: Absolutely. So, as I briefly shared, it was been around in name since 2009, and it was born out of the concept. If you have heard of the State of Black America, which is through the National Urban League, there was a conversation about starting or doing a first report as a State of Black Phoenix or State of Black Arizona, and at that time, uh, Kinja Hassan took the Rams and led it with our first and second volumes as the state of Black Arizona that focused specifically on what was the general landscape of what was happening in that first volume. And then the second volume had some lens between what was happening in the healthcare space. So we've been around in name, and as I shared already, sort of the evolution of coming from an advisory of a lot of great leaders and individuals in the community who really move things forward now having a governing board, our real role is to make sure we create a platform to synthesize data, demographics, and research around the issues and concerns that really affect African Americans in Arizona. So our goal is to really help community leaders and organizations on effective action planning, and decision-making. So as it relates to those issues and concerns, we want to make sure that we have the voice for what impacts us most. The goal is really to encourage a concerted effort by the representatives that are leading the organizations, making decisions, community leaders to provide solutions that really improve the lives of all Arizonans. We not only work in Maricopa County, we also are in Pima. We try to do work as we can across the state. But really, we carry out our mission by creating reports, publications, and the African American Leadership Institute, which is in Phoenix and Southern Arizona. So I talked about volume four, which was released in 2015. Our goal is every five years, we release a publication. We were a little bit behind uh, because of COVID for our volume five, but volume five, is focused on driving local investments in Black Arizonans. And Charlene hit it on the head when she, she talked about like looking at the economic mobility of people and understanding the social determinants that all come together. We realize if you are not making investments in us, it has nothing to do with the size of our population it is a part of the local growth that we contribute. And when we think about history of Black Arizonans here, we have that. And so the volume is an encouragement for people to be accountability partners with us and to really work with us. If you are to be driving solutions or to be doing the work in the community, we really want to create alignment to the data so that the strategies do change the actual numbers. It's not a pretty publication to just say, hey, here's some things, pull it out if you wanna look at it. But if you're doing the work, if we have this many organizations doing this particular work, can we say that we are working with a strategy that truly has alignment Mm -hmm. to making those changes? And that's what we want to see in our work and why our work is so important. I think one of the things that people just need to know, which is so important, is that while we're still just gathering the data, getting aggregated data to get any disaggregated data is still very challenging in this state. But I think what's important is that we want this aggregated data to be in one place so you can come to us. And we want it to help lawmakers to make decisions to unite us so that we can see the gap in those resources and those opportunities be invested and prioritized in the Black community.
0: You touched on so many pieces, but I gotta say, what really sticks out to me is your statement about making sure that this information that you're producing, that it's actually like actionable, basically, that it's not just something that sits on a shelf, that it's something that actually sparks action. And and I know from Dr. Tarver and the work that the Women's Economic Institute does, you know, the data, you've seen the data, you're leveraging some of these resources, and you're taking action. So tell us some more about the Women's Economic Institute, and how some of this data manifests in real on the ground work.
1: That's a great question, Marcus. But before going to that question, I want to step back for a moment. The Women's Economic Institute actually convened the Black Arizona COVID-19 Task Force in March of 2020, actually March 16th of 2020, because we really had a real concern about whether or not the data would be available. We wanted to make sure that there was adequate COVID testing being done in the Black community after looking at the rate of, of infection, transmission, and fatality and how that was impacting African-Americans across not only the state of New York, which I think had some of the most glaring data and and numbers, but also looking at the disproportionate rates of, of impact for African Americans across the nation. It was very important and imperative that Arizona be able to track the data, that we have access to COVID testing, that we lobby our governor to ensure that there were, in fact, moratoriums in place to prevent utility shutoffs and evictions. I'm not certain if you know this or not, but during the pandemic, Arizona had one of the highest rates of eviction in the country. And so really being an advocate for the people, and when you have a population like their African American population, which is statewide less than 5%, you know, it's very concerning about how that community, one, how do you engage the community in a pandemic, where at the core of communication lies the Black church, and that is historically been the case for African-Americans. When you close down the, the churches and you implement a, a stay-at-home order, what does that look like in terms of how we communicate? And so in early March, I reached out to a few colleagues of mine and said, what is it that we're doing? I, I see how this is rolling out. What are we doing? What's the, what's the game plan here in the state of Arizona? And we decided that it was very important that we really look at reaching out across the state to engage African-Americans that were on the front lines, both in the churches, healthcare providers, business owners, our elected leadership. And I called a, a couple of really good colleagues of mine, Audrey Jenkins, Shave Harris, Whitney Walker, and also Chanel Poe to really look at Can we put in place a social media strategy so that we can reach out to young people through some of those digital outlets? What do we do in terms of potentially having a weekly call and and what would a weekly call entail? And we did talk with Equality Health and uh, uh, Hugh Lytle, the leadership there, who agreed to share Dr. Baker, Edmund Baker with us so that he could give a weekly report out on some of the health factors around COVID-19. And we were able to do kind of a weekly update and share with folks what was happening around the nation, specific concerns within our community, whether it was in the prison population, the homeless population, unemployment, food access, you know, access to the eviction courts, making sure that folks understood where they could go if they had symptoms. So we did that through weekly calls also providing people information about the state of education and making sure that folks understood where they could take their families to get access to breakfast or lunch, because that was a major concern for a number of our children. Their meals were coming from school. And so when you shut the schools down, what does that look like, especially in poor and inner city communities? And then the third prong was webinars. So, And we partnered with Equality Health, as well as the American Medical Association, to make sure that people understood what the equity issues were around health care and why there were such large disparities. And these disparities were historic disparities. So it was it certainly what the pandemic did and the death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, more than anything else, is it really made us aware of the depth of inequity in this country. And so for the Women's Economic Institute, we felt that it was very imperative that we jump in in the front end of this and really educate the community, advocate for the community, be a voice for the community, and and, and attempt to convene the community so that we could share kind of our concerns and our thoughts around the pandemic. In terms of where we are now, we're still doing the work. We're working with the Central Arizona Shelter System to look at homeless solutions. And as you can see around the country, President Biden has infused a significant amount of dollars through the infrastructure bill with a real focus on taking down some of these highways that have been erected in Black communities, which was very strategic, very intentional, and very racist. So if you look at kind of some of the racial structures, being able to take some of those down, but making sure that we're advocating for Black development. Developers so that they're able to come into their own communities and be able to revitalize their own communities. Of course, there's a huge concern around gentrification and what that gentrification looks like. As we're seeing an influx of dollars coming in from uh, the Department of Transportation and the federal government, we wanna make sure that small businesses and contractors have access to those dollars. We're also paying a lot of close attention to the American Rescue Plan Act and how that's impacting families and making sure that families have adequate access to food and that they're getting back to work and getting back to work in ways that are healthy that we're addressing some of the health mental health issues uh, specifically around communities of color some of the trauma that has existed over the last two years in the midst of the pandemic but we're also going back to kind of development we can't talk about economic development and not talk about housing for many people their largest expense monthly is their housing it's their rent or it's their mortgage. And some people are spending upwards of 50 to 60% of their monthly income on housing. So we have to find ways that we can make housing affordable. So that means really looking at low-income housing, tax credits and bonds, and being able to put more housing into communities, especially communities like Syracuse, where the city has literally been built up around the south side it's been built up around the black community it's told the story of black poverty but the black community has not benefited from that and that story is so pervasive and repetitive across the country so how do we look at the infrastructure bill how do we look at some of the dollars that are coming into these communities and make sure again that black businesses black homeowners black families and black neighborhoods are getting their fair share so we've expanded our reach to really look at some of the other equity issues and make sure that as Goldman Sachs said in their 2021 Black Womenomics report, that we're advocating for Black women and they're getting their share of the dollars and the resources.
0: Why does it have to be this way that things that hit Entire populations, like a pandemic, still require organizations like the state of Black Arizona, organizations like Women's Economic Institute and the Black Arizona COVID-19 Task Force to step in to create a focus on populations that are experiencing the greatest disparities. Like you mentioned, Dr. Tarbert, it's repetitive. It is based in history. There's historical aspects to all this, but it seems like when things hit large swaths of people... Certain populations have to raise their hand and say, "Hey, this is hitting us even harder than the majority. Let's make sure that we're working together on this.
1: I want to say this to you and and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but you know, of course, when you say things that are controversial, that's what happens. You know the unfortunate reality uh, in America is that we the federal dollars aren't given based, upon race. They're given based on classification. Race is not a classification. Poverty is a classification. Immigrant status is a classification, but race is not. If you are located within a particular census tract, that is a classification. And so a lot of the federal dollars that are infused into our community cannot specifically be earmarked to African Americans. And so short of having an urban league or a Black Chambers of Commerce and organizations like that that do the work, that push for policy, that advocate for small Black-owned businesses, that make sure that Black homeowners have access to weatherization dollars that come into their communities, there are so many policies on the books that have historically alienated and excluded African-Americans. And many of us are familiar with the redlining, practices that still continue today. And so the reality is that our our country is fraught with so many practices that have historically excluded people who look like us. There is, I think, more intentionality around the new American population. There's more intentionality around the migrant population. But there is still this kind of conundrum of what do we do with Black America? Or have we done enough with Black America? And so when we look at the data, we see that Black women are well-educated, but we also see that they're unemployed, underemployed, or they're employed at poverty-level wages. And so you have, on the one hand, these significant amounts of student loan debt, and on the other hand, insufficient capital resources and wages to be able to actually cover that debt. So I think we really have to look at how do we close the wealth gap in America? How do we close the income gap in America? And I think that as we start to look at at, at those gaps and really start to address poverty, we can begin to address some of the other asymptomatic issues that come from it.
2: Charlene hit on a lot of things I think that represent what's happening across our country and even in our state. So I want to share it from sort of a community building standpoint of what I've experienced in leading this organization from its inception to being a nonprofit. Is that I realize a lot of decisions that have been made very much when Charlene talks about it. Specific as she's right, there is not a place for for race people keep that as a standard as to the why. Unfortunately, the other part is is that sometimes we're not in the room or at the table. And we also are left out of in our state we are less than 5% of the overall population. Unfortunately, I hate to say this. There have been comments that have been shared that, well, you know, you're a smaller population so like we focus on, which is not okay or like statistically like not relevant or not able, which again is even more erroneous and wrong. And so what I realize is is that it's a lack of education of really understanding the value points, that this is not about let's look at each person or communities based off of the percentage and make decisions, but understand that every single Arizonan is going to need certain things. Some of it comes as equality, but a lot of it needs to come as equity. And so when I think about what's happening on the ground in front of the people that we see every day, it really is asking them. Like, I am always trying to figure out Are you aggregating us? Because if you're not doing that, that's the first step. And then are we making sure it doesn't have to be me, doesn't have to be Charlene, it needs to be somebody who looks like me, who's at the table, who's guiding you. We as Black people don't need you to speak on our behalf. We can speak on our own behalf. So we need the opportunity or the, the ability to be in the space to say, this is how this Pans out. And it may be similar to other communities of color, but it may not be. But that's where I see the biggest challenge. And I have seen strides where people are doing more listening. I definitely think that George Floyd's unfortunate death has allowed people to realize that there are. Enormous inequities that have happened, and even more because of COVID 19. But I found that there's more listening and more people who have come to our organization to say, I realize what you guys are wanting to do. We need To be a part of this and understanding that the state of black Arizona work may target African Americans, but it needs every single Arizonan to actually work and care about what we do. So that's kind of how I see it from that lens. And when I rope in sort of what Charlene is saying, it, it has to be us doing both at the same time to make this work.
1: And the, and the numbers, I mean, the numbers are astonishing. When, when you say you're 5% of the population, but you're representing 30 mm-hmm. or more percent of the homeless population, of the mm-hmm. prison population, significant unemployment rates, and you're sitting in the room, and these are leadership based organizations, they're academic conversations and circles, and there is not any data to support why these? Why there are so many disparities. I mean, I think that there really has, if we're looking at kind of the state of, uh, of, of Black Arizona specifically, because I think this is not just an Arizona issue. I think it's pervasive across the country. But when you look at the state of Arizona specifically, I think we have to stop with the mindset that there's, as long as we're profiling one minority population, then we can use that data and it applies to all minority communities. There is not a one shoe fits all approach. You cannot take data from one community and apply that to Native Americans, Asians, Latinos, African Americans. There are so many varying factors that impact how we live, how we communicate, the educational experiences that we have, our employment experiences. And so I think, you know, I I would certainly implore the state to really dig deeper dig deeper and, and and urge for the data. You know, one of my concerns about covid was that I knew the dollars were the data was going to be tied to dollars. And so, you know, if you're looking at the dollars, you know, we get, we're going to tell the story of where we want the dollars to go. But early on, the only individuals that were being tested were individuals that were being tested by their private physicians. And so if you look at African Americans and, and and people of color, they tend to be underinsured. You know, or they don't have private physicians, right? And a lot of people weren't going to their their private physicians to get testing done, and so a lot of the early data didn't accurately reflect the status of the community because people didn't even have access to testing. Then all of a sudden, there were there were dollars available, and I remember the governor had issued about a, I think a million and a half dollars that went to the Latino community but at that time did not issue dollars to the African-American community and to other marginalized communities. And so there were those of us that were doing the work and it was purely gratuitous, you know. And so I remember sitting in a room with Dr. Birx, who was leading the uh, White House task force on COVID-19. And I was asked to explain the Black Arizona COVID-19 Task Force and kind of what the status of the Black community was. And, And there were public health workers in the room. I'm not a public health worker. And so the fact that condition of the community was arbitrary, the fact that the governor and the Department of Health were not much more expeditious and intentional and putting us on a path of public health education has created a lot of where we are today. That coupled with some historic distrust of healthcare and and medicine has continued kind of the, the exacerbation Of the pandemic and some of the thoughts that people have around the pandemic, specifically in marginalized communities. And so I think that we really have to call the the state's leadership to a greater degree of accountability. We've talked a lot about equity and healthcare and equity in medicine and accessibility. But I think that with that accessibility, we really have to look at the data. And then we also have to look at how do we partner with organizations that are on the ground, that are in the community doing the work, who have access to the folks who are at ground zero, who are most impacted. And there is, even though we, we believe we're getting closer to the end of the pandemic, and I think the pandemic is going to be seasonal, I think that that is really, it'll be similar to the flu. Of course, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm not in a position to say that with any certainty, but but I certainly see that that is the pattern. And so as we start to help our community come back into the workforce, what does that look like? How do we get people back to work? How do we get, you know, we had a 40% or more loss of Black businesses during the pandemic. You know, how do we make up for some of those significant losses? There are still states that have moratoriums in place regarding evictions. What happens when all of those moratoriums are lifted and the courts are flooded with a series of evictions? How do we get people back to work in a stable home environment? And how do we get our kids back to school in a healthy state with everything that they've seen over the last two years? You know, so I think it's gonna er urge, it's really gonna implore us to work more collaboratively. And I think the work of the Vitalist Health Foundation, your commitment, your investment in organizations like ours is very meaningful and very timely.
2: We did a health and well-being of Black women and girls report last March. And then I did a presentation specifically about that same report and gave the latest update. And I think it's important to the response that I just want to share. So in a lot of this, again, was encapsulated in how Charlene talked about it. But what I do think is important that people know is that Arizona didn't quite follow the national trend when it came to data collection, and we did have a lot of major limitations. But in March of 2020, Black people accounted for about 3% of Arizona's COVID cases. And think about the Arizona population being a little bit less than 5%. So I just said 3% accounted for in that number, which does appear lower than expected. But in vaccination distributions early on, we lagged behind and we were only about less than 2%. But then I want to go a little bit further. If we look at the 4.8 million people in Arizona who received at least one dose of COVID vaccination by race, when we talk about one dose, and this was January 20th, Black people accounted for 3% which was about 148,000 African-Americans. And that's less than actually half of those represented in our overall number. So that's about 47% of African-Americans who have only had at least one dose. And when you compare that to the state average, the state average is about at 69%, but the Black U.S. average is at 54%. So, when we're talking about these systemic issues, you know, and you're thinking about this, that in itself is problematic to thinking about what's happening in Arizona. We're at 47%. The national average for Black is 54%. And even in Arizona, we are still almost 15 plus percent from the actual average of all Arizonans.
0: Put your gut on why that
2: is? Charlene, You, I'm going to let you respond to this because I could tell you my thoughts, but I, I'm going to let her <laughs> take the lead on this one. There is some historic distrust
1: mm. regarding the quality of, of health care that African-Americans have had. You know, even when, when we look at, you know, infant and maternal mortality in this country, yep. you know, we have in, in areas like D.C. where you have whole uh, districts that have 80 and 90 percent mortality rates. And so if we look at the overall quality of health care that African-Americans have received and their level of confidence in that health care hasn't been very high in many respects. There are also so many conflicting messages that people are getting about that if they're getting about both the vaccination as well as about the overall status and and, and seriousness of the of, of COVID-19. You know, if you look in some states, it's there are mask mandates in place. And you go into other states, there are no mask mandates in place. Some states ha- are requiring you to have full proof of vaccination and boosters in order to enter a restaurant or to enter the hotel. New York State is doing that or New York City is doing that. And then you go into other states and those those requirements don't exist. And so the pandemic, unfortunately, was heavily politicized. And so for a community that does have a history of of rightful concern around health care, it really begs the case for why should I take the vaccination? And so I think what part of what we're doing at the Women's Economic Institute is we've looked at some national partners and we've identified a few national partners to really look at how do we tell the story about the pandemic how do we reach people where it really matters and i think that's at the heartstrings what happened who did you lose how did it make your family closer how did it how did you develop a stronger love ties during the pandemic and so we are working on an initiative that we will be hopefully rolling out as a part of our Black Women's Equal Pay Forum, which will become our Black Women's Health and, and Wealth Forum. So really looking at the story behind the pandemic and, and encouraging folks to, to, to talk about the trauma and the experiences and, and, and really beginning to break down some of the silos that I think do happen in communities where there is significant trauma. So looking at it from a health and wellness perspective.
2: Charlene covered, like she said, the mistrust. I heard a lot around what people heard. Oh, so-and-so died because they had a blood clot. So somehow that had something to do with with the vaccine, but really it had to do with their own health disparities. And so when I think about the zip codes, are in those zip codes that are most challenging where African-Americans are living, you know, are there healthcare access you know, we talk about food deserts in areas like South Phoenix. But when I also think about it, are there hospitals that are close enough? Are there different places for people to go? Not just a clinic, not just the urgent care, but are there a number of places? And while we did see efforts of churches stand up, different places to do that, I think it's it's still not enough when those resources should already be right next door in people's community. And that is not always in the codes in which African-Americans live in.
1: And we also, to add to Tanika's point, we also really want to look at cultural competence in medicine, mm-hmm. you know, making sure that doctors are being trained with a level of sensitivity to the communities that they serve, you know, and because there, there are some real opportunities around cultural competence to start to break down some of these silos and i want to applaud equality health because i think that they are uh, kind of one of the champions around you know accessibility in healthcare and as we're seeing more folks really look at telemedicine just making sure that, that that people are feeling empowered and that they they really are being charged with their healthcare and that they're being you know communicated to in a way that that they feel that they feel good about because that's another social determinant. You know, when people when you're dealing with people who are from vulnerable populations that are dealing with poverty and then they're, you know, kind of put upon or talked down to or they are invisible, it further alienates them from seeking the, the medical care and the health attention that they really need. And so how do we start to break down some of those silos through our training?
0: What's your advice to the listener right now who maybe, you know, like Taniqua had mentioned. There's a large population of American citizens and people around the world now who are saying, oh, like there's some real issues here. And certain communities have really been held down for a long time, literally, that we can see now. For those individuals who are listening to this podcast, what's your advice on how they can get involved or help be supportive or at least learn more?
1: Well, I know for, again, we have some work that we're doing in Arizona. And then we also have the work that we're doing here in Central New York. We have a 6,600-square-foot 6, space here in Central New York. Actually, it's a high, high-tech high Wi-Fi accessible. We have an incubator on one side for 10 small businesses. And then on the other side of the suite, we offer community programming, high school equivalency prep, civil service prep, ESL classes, Microsoft certification. You know, But what we're also doing is we're partnering with the university to do more conversations and work around health and wellness. And so I would say for those who are in a position where they can fund the work, please, please, please fund the work. It's very critical. But also if you are someone who believes that this type of work would benefit you as you are kind of recovering from the pandemic, I would encourage you to go and and seek out services, resources, and programming so that you are able to and ready to go back to work so that you do have some of the, the mental health coping skills that you may need in order to kind of make this transition. But certainly seeking resources, seeking programming. For our small businesses, we need to have as many outlets for them, whether it's professional training or getting access to not just micro grants, but getting access to some sizable grants that help them to stabilize their businesses. So being able to, you know, provide those critical resources. This is one of the, probably one of the oldest cliches or adages. It's, you know, just have a little love have a little more love. I think we've all been through a lot over the last two years. It's affected so many people in so many different ways. You know, just having a lot more patience with people and and a lot more encouragement,
2: I think, can go a long way.
0: Taniqua, what would you suggest to our audience or anyone else who wants to start getting involved more in some of this work?
2: Absolutely. Well, Again, a lot, a lot of it is similar to what Charlene said, but I'm going to maybe make it a little bit more specific to state of Black Arizona work. So my first thought is to really first learn and listen. I think that's the big thing. A lot of people haven't realized that some folks are not operating or having the same life experience that you do. And so if that is the case, one of the things I can encourage you to do is read our reports. <coughs> We have a state of black business report, the health and well-being of black girls and women and our volume five, which is a touch of you getting to understand what are some of those issues and what are some of the recommendations that we are looking for. Take the time to do that. If you are interested and you wanna learn further, please give us a call. I think that's the important part is starting there with your own learnings and listening from people you know or don't know or that you work with. That's so super important. And I think to the philanthropic pieces is I'm really looking to encourage those who want to invest to be more liberatory with their investments. So your grant making or your philanthropic dollars should be one that Can allow the organizations that you want to support to leverage what their needs are, not necessarily what your needs are or what you pick that you want to support the organization, but you're allowing the organization to, to let you know what they need that for and allow them to come up with goals and outcomes that match that for their needs. Small black grassroots organizations or organizations of color show up and are different. I can't give you a marquee title, but there's so many other things that could be an ROI for both of us. So I think that's my second thing. And then the third thing is if you haven't, you're interested in just understanding who are some of the organizations in the community. Arizona Community Foundation's Black Philanthropic Initiative has a Black-led organization directory, you can type in on their website and see what all of those organizations are from economics, healthcare, you know, infrastructure, education, and civic leadership. Then that also gives you an opportunity to really learn about what other organizations are doing the work in the community. So those are my thoughts.
1: I wanted to say one more thing <laughs> that I should have said, and that is to support and buy from women-owned businesses of color. Support Black women business owners, support urban businesses because it's critical.
0: Nico Broughton of the State of Black Arizona and Dr. Charlene Tarvert of the Women's Economic Institute. Thank you so much for being on this podcast and for sharing your experiences.
2: Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you.
0: As our guests emphasized, For all of us to live well, we all need the opportunity to live well. The Black community has a rich, resilient history that literally built the beginnings of this country and has continued to weave the social, economic, and cultural fabric of its future, despite atrocities, despite being repeatedly held back and held down by individuals and systems. The past two years, highlighted by the pandemic, economic hardship, and a racial justice movement underscore a unique period in Black history, a reminder of the need to focus not only on equality, but also on equity. Frederick Douglass once stated that without struggle, there is no progress. The journey, including its struggles, continues for Black America. And thanks in part to organizations like the State of Black Arizona and the Women's Economic Institute, Progress is being made. So what do we do next? Start by learning from the work of the state of Black Arizona. Read their reports and gain a better understanding of the Black experience in Arizona. Or, as Taniqua mentioned in the interview, check out the Arizona Community Foundation's list of Black-led organizations in Arizona. Get involved and show your support. Thank you to the team at Gordon C. James Public Relations and producer Rob Trigg at Star Worldwide Networks for editing and sound design. If you enjoyed this episode, you can access all of our episodes at vitalisthealthorg podcast, or by searching for Vitalist Spark on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.